The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we'll discuss the latest tactical and strategic updates from across Ukraine. Look at how Ukraine is winning the drone war. And we'll talk to Val Voschevska, a Ukrainian living in London, on digital activism and how the diaspora is reacting to the conflict. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's day 20, and today I'm joined by Dom Nichols, Defence and Security Editor, Theo Mers, Deputy Foreign Editor, and Danielle Sheridan, Defence and Political Correspondent. Dom, let's start with you. What are the latest updates from the ground? Hi, David. Hi, everybody. Um, so overnight, there were a number of strikes on, on uh, the capital city, Kiev. A number of residential tower blocks were hit. Uh, the mayor, Vitaly uh, Klitschko, has said that four people were dead in that. Um, this continues the pattern over recent days, last three weeks, really, of, um, of Russian uh, random and uh, illegal, it must be said, targeting of civilian areas. Kiev is going to have a curfew from 8pm local time uh, tonight until 7pm Thursday. Uh, the, mayor, the mayor has announced because it's getting... Yeah, it's, it's well. It's, it's always been horrendous, but it's uh, it looks like it might be going in the way of Kharkiv and Chernihiv, uh, in that it's just totally random now and incessant. Um, elsewhere uh, in the south of the country, around uh, the town of Mikhailiv, uh, the um, the mayor there has said that they've pushed back some of the Russian forces. That town is is important because you need to get through that town. Russians need to get through that town to get over the Bug River and then come into. Uh, any kind of assault into Odessa from the east. Um, and in uh, Mariupol, the, the siege continues, besieged city on the, on the, on the coast there. Um, that, that is still, the Red Cross says that the, that, that, that city is being suffocated, their words, um, and hundreds of thousands are still uh, are suffering there. The, the city council have tweeted today that 2,000 cars have left. So even if the cars are absolutely packed to the gunnels, that leaves you know, hundreds of thousands of people in a desperate, desperate situation there. Um, only a couple of other things to note. Uh, in Slovakia, has charged two people with espionage. Uh, one, a, a former military academy officer, the vice rector of the military academy. Um, they said he's been cooperating with the Russian GRU, the Russian military intelligence, since, uh, since 2013. And uh, just finally, earlier on today in London, uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson had a video link with uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine. And uh, Johnson said, uh, we must try to do more, particularly to support you in protecting the Ukrainian people from bombardment, from artillery and aviation. So not coming out and saying anything about a no-fly zone, which they've repeatedly said is, is not going to be, um, that NATO is, is not going to set up. But what that means, how they're going to protect from bombardment, from artillery and aviation, we've yet to see. There were reports last week, don't forget, Defence Secretary Ben Wallace said that that Britain would be looking to send out new uh, Starstreak high-velocity missiles for uh, air defence. So it looks like that that may well be um, ramping up. Thank you very much, Dom. Theo, do you have anything to add to that? Yes, I mean, just to follow on with what Dom was saying, um, the most striking things today are these images coming out of Kiev again, of uh, residential buildings uh, 
being being targeted or being hit, uh, large buildings on fire, two people reported dead there in what seems to be increasing attack on Kiev. Obviously, it's been in, as Dom says, has been in a, a very difficult situation for almost three weeks now, but it does seem like the pressure... <laughs> And the the loss of life there is is ramping up. Um, at the same time, uh, today the prime ministers of the Czech Republic, Poland, and Slovenia all decided to to go to Kiev by train in a in a sign of European or international solidarity. And they're planning on. Uh, we we know that they're in Ukraine now. They're, they're, I'm not. I don't think they've quite arrived in. In Kiev yet, but they are planning to meet with Zelensky, and that will be the first time any foreign leader has met with him there since before the the invasion, um, which they said they they've decided to do, and in spite of the security risks, just as a as as a sign of of support and and solidarity. Obviously, he's been doing um, he's been having all these conversations, for example, with with Boris Johnson today, speaking to. The House of Commons earlier, he's due to speak with um, politicians in in the US tomorrow. But um, this physical presence is um, diplomatic support on a on a different level while the city is under increasing attack. Thanks very much, Theo. We also had the story yesterday that The Telegraph um, covered overnight that a Russian journalist who protested against the war on the country's most popular TV channel um, stormed a studio uh, with a with an anti-war banner. Uh, Danielle, I believe you want to speak about this. Yeah, um, it's just really shocking. I mean, I say it's shocking. Is it shocking? Um, it's shocking that she had the guts to do that, basically, because she would have... Uh, sorry, so we're talking about Marina um, of Sanakova. Um, she was an editor at uh, Channel One, which is state-controlled. And, um, you know, she went live on air with a with a poster saying, um, no war, Um and she would have done that knowing that it would cost her um, her job, um, her safety. Um, the, the sign read, no war, stop the war, don't believe the propaganda, they are lying to you here. Um, she kind of went on screen during a live broadcast and you can see footages all over Twitter. But basically, um, she you could see her standing behind a news anchor um, for a, a couple of seconds and then they, sh- they switched to other footage. Um, and her lawyer has since tweeted that her whereabouts are unknown. Um, that there was um, a Twitter account earlier under her name, but um, I understand it's actually um, it wasn't a legitimate account, but it was it had been tweeting stuff about how you know she stands by what she's done. But um, others have said that actually her work, including her lawyer, said her whereabouts haven't been known for hours since that happened. So it's kind of, it's very worrying um, regarding her safety, but also you know the outpouring of support for this journalist has been amazing. Vladimir Zelensky addressed it last night saying it was really amazing that this journalist had um gone on air and and, and protested uh alex um alexi navani's spokeswoman tweeted um which means cool girl you know like she what, what an amazing woman to uh, to go on live on air and, and protest knowing what sacrifices she was going to be making um i i think like everyone is really concerned about her and um i think everyone is just hoping that she's okay it's just another example of how um awful this situation is um 
and 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 just the sheer levels of propaganda and how how it's so sad that um that to get the real message across in an authoritarian state um can only be done by putting yourself in harm's way and and protesting um i I mean as a journalist i think i definitely take for granted being able to report in a country where freedom of speech and and the press is valued thanks daniel um theo or dom i don't know if you had any more thoughts on that um i I think the the concern or what what we don't know is is what happens to the TV editor now, because there there was this new the, a new law brought in a, a week or so ago in in Russia that spreading fake news about the armed the Russian armed forces can be punishable now by up to fifteen years in jail. And Russia's definition of fake news is is saying that there's any war in Ukraine at all. They require journalists to say that it's a, a special military operation that's aimed at the denazification of of Ukraine. So obviously, under this repressive new law, what Marina Ovsyanikova has done is is illegal and this would be the first high profile case where that law has has been applied and we don't know how far the russian authorities are going to go on on that especially now that it, it has attracted all this international attention so i think that is going to be the story this afternoon and in the next few days when she when she does resurface what what happens next thanks very much theo um Don, would you talk quickly to the the news that the Foreign Office is investigating reports that we think three British former special forces uh, were killed in the Russian airstrike at the Yavorov base near the Polish border? That, 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 that's, that's new and extremely concerning. Yeah, the reports came out yesterday that there may be uh, three former British service personnel who were killed in that strike at the weekend. Uh, we haven't been able to bottom it out, I mean, firstly because the British Ministry of Defence just doesn't doesn't hold contact details and all the rest of it of veterans. So if you speak to them and say, was so-and-so um, you know, in, in this camp, they just they simply wouldn't know and they wouldn't release that information anyway. We've reported before that it's, it's highly likely that there's a number of people gone over from this country as they have from other, from other countries. We've seen images of people in, in British military kit uh, claiming they're from Britain. So it's, it's not beyond the run possibility at all. Whether or not they were part of the UK Special Forces group, we, we just don't know. Um, there's a, a lot of people claim to have been in, in the group or, or attached to the group. So we, we just don't know. But, but actually, I mean, that, that's of interest to, to us domestically. But we need to be careful not to um, over or pay too much. Not too much. That's the wrong. That's the wrong way of saying it. But, you know, these are these, these are three tragic deaths uh, murdered by by the illegal invasion, but set against the thousands of deaths that are happening all the time. Um, yeah, we, we, we should mark it and look into it, but, but, but not, not dwell overly, given the, um, the suffering that, that's being experienced by many, many people uh, elsewhere in the country. Thanks, Dom. Uh, just one more big question from me, I think. Dom, you've written a really interesting analysis of the, the drone war in, 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 in this conflict. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what you were looking at and what were your conclusions? Yeah, so this comes back to a point that we, we've made a few times about how Ukraine seemed to be winning the information war. Their, their use of social media and um, short 
short films and uh, use of TikTok and all the rest of it has been has been immense, really. Uh, of course, you should you should again big health warning on on, on all these images that that we receive of, of uh, alleged destruction of, of Russian equipment and all the rest of it. But just the sheer quantity of it. It stands in stark contrast to the very, very little that's coming out from the Russian forces. And bearing in mind, yeah, up to this conflict, we thought Russia were the, the, the sort of exemplars of, of, of how to do misinformation, disinformation, whatever you like, but how to use social media to put your, put your message across. We, we said that the, the St. Petersburg-based, the Troll Factory, the Internet Research Agency was the kind of the gold standard of this. And yet we've seen, seen very little. So from the Ukraines, we... Ukrainian side, we've seen um, a lot of footage alleged to come from TB2 Barakta drones, these, these drones made in Turkey. And now we see the TB2 again, and there's this amazing footage of, of destroying tanks and armoured vehicles and air defence assets and all the rest of it. It's very arresting stuff, and a lot of open source sites have uh, verified it and, and verified the, the attacks and the claims and counted the, the, the amounts of uh, material that have been lost. And yet, very little coming back from the other side. So I was just in the piece today. I was just asking. I wonder where where the the um, firstly the Russian drones are, and secondly why there, there's such so little footage on social media of, of um, hitting Ukrainian positions. Of course, there's some, but it's, it's nothing like um, what uh, Ukraine have been delivering. And it's just it's just fascinating. And I, I wonder if if the drones are there. Uh, in which case you, you wonder why they've not sewn up the other side of that equation and, and, a, and a work on the information campaign to push the footage out. Or maybe the drones aren't there, in which case you wonder, well, well why not? We know, they've, we know they use them. They've got, a, they've got about 2,000 you know, aircraft, UAVs, uninhabited air vehicles in their inventory. We know they use them. They used them last year on, on ZAPAD-21, the massive um, military drills they ran last year with uh, uh, Belarusian forces. So we know they've 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 woven drones into their their mode of warfare. Uh, drones are no longer the exotic or the experimental side of of military um, technology, and yet they don't seem to be in evidence. Um, and if they're not being used, we just wonder if that's another another example of them kind of sort of stuttering out of the blocks in this in this war, or um, or, or, or we're just looking in the wrong place. I also. Posit in today's uh, Dispatches newsletter. If you've not signed up for the, the Telegraph Daily Ukraine newsletter, Dispatches, um, I suggest that's, that's not a bad way to look for, for daily updates. And I just suggest that I, I wonder if the, the drones are actually, if we're not seeing them and Russia are not are not pushing their footage and not remaking really too much of them because they, they're over in the West. And I, I wonder if they're looking for these resupply lines, these um, the lines from, from uh, NATO countries and from other Western countries that are supplying anti-tank and anti-air missiles. We've seen in recent days um, a, a drone, an all antenna drone, which we know Russia uses. Uh, an all antenna drone crashed yesterday, last night, in about 50 miles inside Romania. Uh, last week, there was that, uh, the weird, the old, the very old Soviet Tupolev, I think it was 141, but a Soviet-era drone that, that somehow flew right across Hungary and crashed in, in Zagreb, the capital of Croatia. Um, there's also reports from Hungary that, that they had to scramble jets because there was a drone incursion uh, in their airspace. So there's a, there seems to be a lot of stuff happening in the West, and I just wonder if, if Russia's actually concentrating its drone uh, fleet um, and looking for these resupply columns. I don't know why they're not trying to get on the front foot in the information war by showing footage, as the Ukrainians are, of, uh, of, of drones destroying tanks and other, other stuff. It's very perplexing. 
Thanks very much, Tom. Uh, that's absolutely fascinating. Uh, I'd like to invite to the to, to the spaces now uh, Val Voschevska, Ukrainian living in London. Val, thank you very very much for for coming on to to talk to us. Um, I'm just wondering what's your what's your reaction to listening listening to to, to the news we're bringing today. Well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me and, and giving me the opportunity to put sort of, I guess, a human um, phase story to to the conflict in Ukraine, because I think we talk a lot about, which we have to talk about, the facts of what's happening on the ground, the analysis of what's happening on the ground. But I personally think that it's quite important to still keep thinking about the people and their lives and their stories and their hopes and their thoughts and just in general how this is affecting normal human beings in Ukraine, um, which is why I think um, it's great that I'm able to talk to you all today. Um, And just in terms of some of the news that you've covered today, I was just thinking about the drones thing and the information warfare and, and, you know, why Russia is potentially not using um, the footage or not not taking any footage. Um, I think they're petrified and this is obviously my personal opinion but they're petrified of, of of you know the truth leaking i think it's probably pretty hard at this point to show anything that will not point to uh the destruction that that the russian army is causing in ukraine which is why i i personally think that they're probably not um responding to some of the footage and and some of the narrative work and some of the sort of information um, side of things from the Ukrainian from from the, from the Ukrainian government in the same way. Um, so that's kind of my take on on this particular topic. Thanks very much, Fal. So, would you tell us a little bit about yourself? Where, where are you from in Ukraine? Yeah, of course. Um, so, I was born in 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 Kiev, the capital. My family is half from the Chernihiv region, and my mother's family is from the Kiev region. Um, I grew up uh, for most of my life in Kiev and studied abroad since I was about sixteen in the UK. Um, and I live currently in London and work in London. Um, and obviously, a lot of the things uh, that I used to do in my day to day life changed quite significantly as of a couple of weeks ago. And so I've really shifted what I'm doing in um, focusing on sort of uh, mobilizing people in the West and around the world to support Ukraine and use um, social media and, and sort of digital channels to be able to uh, educate people about the history and the culture and and in general, the sort of feelings um, and and thoughts of Ukrainian people. We were we were chatting before we we we, we started this space, and I said that U- Ukraine, I think, sits on the edge of, of of a Western European's consciousness slightly. Most of us probably haven't visited. We, we don't have much of a sense of what what daily life is like. C- could you could you give us that? What, what is what does Ukraine mean to you? I think Ukraine means a lot of different things to me. Ukraine is obviously my my home uh, where you know my 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 parents grew up my grandparents grew up um as someone who's sort of lived abroad i've always been you know for me ukraine has always meant freedom has always meant resistance against sort of um autocracy and it it always represented sort of this you know spirit of ukrainian people to fight for a better future you know i i i went essentially through you know two revolutions and now I'm going through apparently a war uh, within Ukraine. And so this is something that a lot of us have have grown up with. And, you know, the fight for democracy and human rights and and, um, freedom of speech has always been something that, you know, we've been quite interested in and feel quite passionate about, which is why I guess you all are seeing um, the way that Ukrainian people right now talk about their country and and are certain as as am I in our victory and and in a better future for our people in our country. Um, and so for me, it just it means a lot of things, of course. But 
first and foremost, it's it's always meant this sort of, you know, spirit of freedom and and day to day life. You know, it's not much different to a lot of places in the world. It's it's quite it's quite similar. You know, like I last time I was in Ukraine was actually in January. I was um, looking for for a place, a location to get married. And there's just, you know, such a vibrant culture and, and so many different new restaurants, such a cool clubbing scene. Uh, there's, you know, the just the architecture is also absolutely beautiful. And and it's, it's just terrifying for me uh, to think that some of it is getting destroyed as we speak with you all today. Um, and, and, you know, not just the architecture and the buildings, but also the people um, that are so sort of, you know, thoughtful and, and so full of hopes for the future. And just talking about the people, I imagine every single Ukrainian now probably has, has, a, has a war story. Um, could we ask what's, what's yours and your family's? So I was very fortunate and I guess now realizing this privilege to have my parents visit me uh, two weeks before uh, the actual, you know, latest iteration of the war started. Uh, this was always planned. Uh, but, you know, when Russia attacked Ukraine at 4 a.m. a couple of weeks ago, um, the first thing that I woke up to was, you know, my, my parents on the phone screaming to, to the family that we still had, uh, that we still have in Ukraine. So um, all of my sort of both my mom's and my, my dad's family were in Ukraine, in Kiev at the time. Um, and and so, you know, the next couple of weeks for us was sort of how do we support them as well as we can? And, and how do we support those who want to leave uh, to leave safely? Um, so we managed to get my one of my uncles and, and his wife um, out of the country. And we tried to get my grandmother out who um had parkinson's but unfortunately we we got her over the border in hungary but um she passed away uh recently so we're just you know my my way of uh dealing with this is celebrating ukraine and celebrating my grandmother and celebrating everyone who's still fighting my friends and and you know everyone everyone around me all of my ukrainian um all of my ukrainian connections just celebrating our spirit and and uh, sort of trying to do as much as I can to help people in Ukraine. We're very, very sorry to hear about your about your grandmother. Um, just, just wanted to ask you quickly about your uh, your, your contemporaries, young young Ukrainians, um, potentially in the diaspora, looking back. Um, what does it feel like to look back on a on a, on your country at war? Well, I think for us, it's like you know the concept of looking back. It's 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 a weird one because you feel guilty about not directly being able to help like directly within the country right now um so i know that a lot of us have been doing everything else possibly imaginable over the past couple of weeks um everything from you know i have friends who are like personally trying to source things that they can get into the country you know buying loads of stuff putting it in a car like driving across the border uh to Poland and then to Lviv and, and trying to get that to people that they know. I have friends who are doing a lot within the media sphere, the social media sphere. There's been like a massive, massive boom of, of social media sort of uh, activism and, and education um, across the board from Ukrainians in the diaspora within Ukraine. Um, and a lot of us have been, you know, busy with very practical things like trying to support our families who are uh, getting out of the country and, and trying to make sure that, you know, our friends as well and our families are are able to find opportunities right now um, across the world, I guess. You know, it's just 
there's a lot of different elements of what what a lot of us are trying to do but it's also you know this i think a lot of us are still and i think this goes for not just ukrainians in the diaspora who have been here for a while but also people who are just now fleeing but also people in ukraine is that i think a lot of us have not realized and i don't know how long this war is going to go on for but a lot of us still have this like immediate emotional reaction that this is super temporary and that we need like a temporary solution a temporary way of life and then we'll change it once this is done and i know that you know people in the west a lot of people in the west believe that it, this is going to go on for quite a while and uh, judging by how everything is unfolding um but i think like on an emotional and personal level it's really hard to understand that so i've also been talking to a lot of my friends from who are still in ukraine you know some are fighting uh, some are part of sort of the media and and as you called it like the information warfare troops if if that is what you can call them um sort of there's a lot of you know bloggers who have massive accounts who are doing a lot of volunteer work i myself volunteer for women's march in ukraine and and have colleagues who are still there supporting women in vulnerable situations through various different means including like psychological support and and whatnot so you know the list is really long for what we're doing and we're just trying to find out what is the best use of our time and everyone has def- different expertise within their you know day-to-day life that now is useful in in helping our people and helping our country thanks Val. i would say just quickly um theo daniel and and dom if if you want if you want to join this conversation do 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 please oh theo you've unmuted oh uh, yeah well I, I wanted to ask a question um thank you very much for coming and talking with us you talked about your uh, social, your social media campaigns and other people's social media uh, campaigns and activism. I just wondered uh, what kind of response you'd had to that. Do you feel like you're reaching people who sort of really didn't knew very little about Ukraine before, or is it more people who are politically engaged anyway? And are you getting any sort of pushback from trolls or sort of from people with uh, maybe a sort of Kremlin narrative? I'm just, I'm, I'm wondering how that has been for you and how how well you think it is working well i my background is in sort of social media both within the media and 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 the activism space i worked at newsweek and amnesty international and so i'm just you know using that right now as much as i can in this context to to um educate people so um as of you know before january there was very little content on social media um that was digestible uh, on Ukraine in English or in other languages, but Ukrainian. There's of course a big and diverse uh, sort of group of people and and an information space on social media in Ukrainian for Ukrainians about Ukraine. But there was virtually nothing until this one post. I think it was January 22nd uh, by Yulia Tymoshenko, not the prime minister, an activist on Instagram, went viral. Um, I'm sure some of you may have seen it. It was just like a an explainer on what's going on with Ukraine, and it got over like a hundred thousand shares. Um, and, and you know, 80,000 likes. And, and it was just like the first big piece of social media activism geared towards the West to explain what was actually happening from a Ukrainian, if that if 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 that makes sense. And since then, a lot of us have been doing a lot of that content. And you can check out most of what I do is on Instagram. It's the same uh, account. You can find my name on Instagram and check out what we've been doing. Um, it's a lot of smaller accounts. You'll be surprised. But our reach has been you know, unprecedented right now, because we really understood that there was absolutely a massive gap in more of the educational side of things around, you know, Ukraine's history and, and Ukraine's culture and Ukrainians perspectives and, and, and everything else around that. Because I think 
a lot of people, what I did find um, both right now and before, as you said, like, did you get any pushback and, and stuff like that? Is that, that there's been obviously this like massively binary narrative of US slash NATO versus Russia. And I think one of our main responsibilities and one of our main goals so far has been to show we actually have our own history. We actually have a, our own history of of sort of, um, you know, struggle and, you know, Russian imperialism and, and all of these things that that is, you know, that that can explain what's happening in Ukraine as well as all the other sort of uh, NATO versus Russia kind of perspectives on the war. Um, and so we've been really trying to talk about that as much as we can. Um, and also, you know, there's been a lot of people doing this throughout academia for quite a while now, you know, in Cambridge and, and various other places, specifically talking about, you know, Russian imperialism and, 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 and what it means for us in the 21st century um, for Ukraine in particular. But we've really tried to digest that for audiences on social media. You would actually be surprised right now. We were talking about this yesterday with, with another person who's doing this with me. And there's not much pushback from, as you call, as you said, like pro people with more Kremlin leaning perspectives, which is, I think, a real testament to what the platforms are doing right now. So Instagram and, and Facebook and and Twitter, um, I know that they've messed up quite significantly in previous times. I know also probably, you know, Russia shutting down Instagram within the country and, and other social media platforms is helping a little bit in, in making sure that, you know, we are operating as Ukrainians in a safer space. Um, but I think um, it's just getting a little bit, yeah, it's, it's, we are able to better communicate with people in the West. There was a lot of efforts prior to a lot of these social media bans um, from the Ukrainian sort of media and activism circles to focus what we were doing on Russian audiences. But I believe that that has gotten harder and harder um, with the latest news uh, on, on you know, what, what the Russian government is doing to limit uh, what information people consume within the country. Theomers. So following on from, from what you're saying about this Russian crackdown on, on free speech, and obviously if you're an at all liberal-minded or opposition-minded Russian at the moment, this is, this is a terrible time and the invasion is being accompanied by this um, real repression at home. How do you respond to stories like that as a, as a Ukrainian? Do you, do you feel, is it possible to feel sympathy for the parts of Russia that are being destroyed and the, the the Russian people who are being affected by this war? Or is that... Does, yeah, does good question. Um, yeah. I try not to focus on that because I'm, you know, my main goal and responsibility is to center the experiences of Ukrainians and make sure that Ukrainian voices are being heard. And if I spend my energy on, you know, talking about the way that you know, Russians feel right now, then I won't have energy to do the things that are directly impacting my country um and and the way that everyone else views my country and 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 understands our history and so you know as as i'm sure any ukrainian will tell you i have loads of russian friends and and i know that a lot of people don't support this and and in in no way you know when we talk about ukraine are we sort of ignoring the russian the russian people who um who support who support ukraine but we're just we're just asking everyone to for for once pay attention to sort of what we have to say to our country to our culture and celebrate us you know just because you're celebrating just because you're celebrating one country and one culture it doesn't really mean that you're um disregarding or or demeaning a different one and so 
I would just say that, you know, as much as possible, I try to not necessarily right now engage with 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 some of the other issues that are going on um, around, um, you know, the way that more liberal Russians are feeling. I think it's important to celebrate, um, you know, moments of heroic sort of activism amongst uh, Russians. Um, and, and we will do that. I just I just really want us to be able to focus on the Ukrainian experience and 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 for once to make sure that that, you know, we are being heard and to put, as I said before, sort of a personal perspective on, on what is happening in in Ukraine. I had a question. Daniel Sheridan. I think it's 90,000 um, British people have opened their homes to take in a Ukrainian refugee. Um what what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think we as a population um, uh, are like overwhelmed by by the generosity of British families. So I'm I'm curious to know what your thoughts are. Uh, actually, I spent the whole of today trying to fill out an application for my parents mm-hmm. uh, for the Ukrainian family scheme, and because yeah. my parents are in the UK, I can't do it, which is a little bit bizarre um it's like physically impossible via the link that they gave you so i think there's like a lot of limitations both like practical and and i think at a government level as well to to what is happening in terms of supporting ukrainian refugees and i knew this would happen you know i had personal messages from my colleagues from my friends in the uk saying like you know if you have any friends if you have any family we have a spare bedroom we have a spare room we have this and that and it's such a beautiful thing to see the support for so many of us i think they're just from from you know my personal opinion there there should probably be a bit more support from the top level to make sure that this is actually possible and that a lot of the limitations even if oversights you know like i just said about my parents who are physically in uk uh, who are not able to properly apply for this ukrainian family scheme um i think um, it's it's just a matter of time, right? Because things are developing so quickly that it's just like from one day to another, um, things change. So we just need to wait and see what happens. And I think one thing I also keep saying is, um, I think according to the UNHCR, 73% of uh, refugee populations around the world, people live in neighboring countries. Um, so I think the biggest populations are like in Turkey, in Uganda, in, um, in Colombia. And, and this is why I think Poland and Hungary and Slovakia and Romania have been sort of so um, taking on a lot of Ukrainian refugees because we're literally neighbors. And it's it's very it's it's similar to, you know, other wars that have happened over the years. The countries that border the country immediately are the ones who have to uh, be a bit faster with the way that they accept people on the border and across the border. And so, you know, when when uh, sometimes I read, you know, articles comparing sort of uh, refugee treatment and I like I just want to say that I really hope that this just is a wake-up call for all countries and all particularly European countries to just look at their refugee policies one more time and and see how can we be as 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 welcoming and as supportive to people who are fleeing wars as we can um, no matter where whether they're from Ukraine or somewhere else. Tom Nichols. Yeah hi Val thanks so much for um, for doing this it's really really good to hear your your voice and your stories. I'm just just interested in in your view on on how we're covering the war over here, um, the British media as a whole, and I suppose all international media. We send we send our journalists out, and I just wondered if you felt that that was the best way of getting the message out, or if we should be trying to uh, use sort of local journalists a little bit more. 
well, one thing which I think you all have been doing quite well, all foreign media is being quite careful about the time of Ukrainian people and their safety and, you know, not overwhelming us because we are directly impacted by what's happening. And a lot of the time, as I as I said in the very beginning, you know, when David asked the question, it's like half of the time I'm doing, you know, my my activism stuff and, you know, educating people and talking to the media and, and you know, talking to other people and, and things like that. And half of the time I have to do very practical things like, you know, trying to find a place to stay for my friend who's fleeing with her kid. And, and so I think a good thing that that the media in the UK has been doing is and, and I think across the board is every time I've spoken to someone, everyone's been very including David, who reached out to me, is just like we we're acutely aware of, of how this impacts you. And we we would love to have you speak to us and we'd love to speak to you. But we just need to be really careful um, about your safety and time and, and other things. And I think this is particularly important for for journalists within Ukraine. I think, you know, if I think it's it, it really depends. I think it's such a tough situation. I, I know we all saw the terrible news a couple of days ago about the, the American journalist who who sadly was was shot on a Russian checkpoint. And, and it just puts, you know, it's, it's a situation of war. We just need to do whatever we can to highlight what's happening, uh, whether that's using Ukrainian peop- uh, journalists or not. Um, I think... I think what what a lot of people can probably do better, and I'm sure many of you agree with me, is is sort of make sure that you know along along the coverage of like the factual, practical, uh, theoretical, analytical stuff that there's still quite a bit of sort of uh, coverage of of human stories, how this is impacting people, how this is impacting their you know data. There's I'm, I'm sure there's so many incredible people who can tell you about so many different experiences that they have had both in this war prior to this war that that I think that's what um, potentially and you know the longer the war goes on the more we are likely to forget about the people that it impacts and it's I think it's just normal natural human you know behavior and, and approaches to this so I think it's just like reminding yourself sometimes that you know on a daily basis for some people you know their lives sort of paused um at the at 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 the point in time when you know the first uh bomb or rocket hit kiev and Kharkov and chernihiv and and a lot of other um cities across ukraine thanks so much val um i guess i guess one one final question from me is what what is there something you miss the most about ukraine when when you get back there what's the first thing you'll do i miss my family who are still there uh, my mom's uncle and and my godmother and and their whole family and my dog are still there and and I I I you know the first thing I'll do is is obviously see them and and um, hug them and and celebrate our victory together and um, just you know being there with with people I love is going to be something that I really look forward to. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news analysis and dispatches from the ground. Subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our daily Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you found this show helpful, follow Ukraine The Latest on your podcast app. And if there's something we could do to make it even more useful, please do let us know. You can email podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. 
Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and on Twitter, Sophie Coe. Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.